The Klubot was set to no-no in Texas. Corey Kluber threw the first no-hitter for the Yankees since David Cohn's Perfecto in 1999. The sixth no-hitter in the majors this season, one away from the single-season MLB record. Nelly and I will dive headfirst into his stellar performance, and with Tony LaRusso's White Sox coming to town this weekend, we'll debate whether the veteran manager was right or wrong with his comments. And MLB Network analyst, former Major League infielder Billy Ripken joins the show. So get locked into a new episode of The Pinched Stripe Pod next from the New York Post. All right, here's a pitch stripe pod. Hello and welcome back to the Pinstripe Pod, our Yankees podcast with the New York Post. It's Chris Sheeran here with four-time World Series champion Yankees great Jeff Nelson. You'll also hear our producer Jake Brown as well during the show. Follow the entire crew on Twitter for updates on the show. That's at Chris Sheeran, yes, at NYNelly43 and at Jake Brown Radio. You can subscribe to the Pinstripe Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find podcasts. If you're an Apple user, we appreciate you giving the Pinstripe Pod a five-star rating and write it in a nice review if you would. Former MLB infielder and MLB network analyst Billy Ripken joins us in a bit. But first, we have history. The first no-hitter in the Pinstripe Podcast history, Nelly. Yankees moved to 24-19 after their second win over the Rangers. They have another shot today as we tape this to take another series. Uh, Corey Kluber, who we've discussed on this podcast more than once, uh, he got off to that slow start. You thought he was throwing too many sliders, but that pitch in particular, Nelly, was one that was really working for him against the Rangers in that no-hitter. was nasty. You know, finally, we have something really good to talk about. Yeah, you know? how about that? And I think he must have been listening to the podcast when we were saying, oh, I don't know if he's going to stay healthy the rest of the year. And he doesn't look nearly what he did back in Cleveland. And all of a sudden he goes and he throws a no-no. And he walked one guy. And that was the only thing that kept him from a perfect game. You know, he had the backdoor slider going to the lefties. It was nasty. You know, the pitch inside to the lefties. Here's another pitcher that throws under 90, uh, 91, 92, so he doesn't throw 95 to 98, that throws a no-hitter this year. Number six for the season, one away from tying the record. But I still think it's special, even though I think things need to be done offensively or rule-wise, but it's still amazing when you're shutting down a major league team. I don't care how weak the Rangers are or whatever. It's in Texas. The ball still flies. It was an unbelievable job by Corey Kluber. It was an unbelievable job, and I have to nitpick something. It wouldn't be me if I wasn't nitpicking something, Nelly. You know me. But he would have had a perfect game if not for the walk in the third inning. And I'm not nitpicking Kluber here. I'm nitpicking the umpiring because there were a couple, there was a sinker and there was a slider that could have been called strikes. It was a four-pitch straight walk that could have been a more competitive at-bat for Kluber and could have came back and got Culberson out if not for bad umpiring. So that kind of pissed me off a little bit because, you know, the no-hitter is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to poo-poo that at all. And we both know what it takes 
And you heard Kluber after the game and what he said, it's happiness that I got it, but it's also relief that it's over. When you're doing that, I mean, it's it's nails on a chalk. It's Quint from Jaws. It's those nails on a chalkboard the whole game because one little slip up, it's like a golf swing. You know it, Nelly. You pitch two and you play golf. You move one little thing on a pitch, one little thing on a golf swing. It's a mistake and you're paying for it the rest of the day. It is. That's why, you know, even though there's six already and we're talking May 20th, I still think it's a feat that is so tough to do. You know, so when you're talking about six different pitchers in baseball that have done it this year, I still think it's really, really special. You're trying to get out a major league team. And like you mentioned, one mistake will be a hit. You know, they shift. You know, half the infield most of the time is is open. All you have to do is maybe make a mistake and the guy goes the other way for a base hit. It's still a great, unbelievable job that these guys are doing. And hey, what, what's a baseball game if the umpires aren't noticed? That's their whole goal. <laughs> you, you know, you, you just, it's whatever happened to, hey, if you don't ever talk about the umpires, they must have done a great job. That never happens anymore. And you're constantly watching highlights where, umpires are making mistakes and I think replay is great but it's also giving these guys a a a way out say you know what I can make any call I want because they're just going to replay it and it doesn't matter anymore and strike zones I I still don't want the electric strike zone I don't want the automatic strike zone because you're going to have even more problems with both sides hitters and pitchers and managers they don't realize how tough this is going to be without the umpires trying to get involved it's never a baseball game you know it would be fun the I know the Astros were accused of having the buzzer, but in order for a for a batter to know it's a called strike with no umpire back there and an electric umpire, I think it should be like kind of operation, don't you? Like if it's a strike, the, the batter will know by getting a zap. <laughs> into their body i think that'd be pretty cool you know and while they still you know they should put the the buzzer in a certain place on the umpire so if they get the call wrong and they have to replay (laughs) it when it's an obvious call then that's the operation where they get buzzed somewhere electroshock therapy maybe maybe they would uh start taking i'm not saying that they don't take the job serious but you know maybe they would start opening their eyes and making some calls and maybe some of the bad umpires would say hey you know what you know i'm I'm, I'm good i'm gonna retire this is you know what job in america America is guaranteed you can be horrible at it and still keep your job. Nelly shows no mercy. We're going to have electric chairs in the show. You make a mistake on the podcast, your chair just starts buzzing or yes, something. Yes, I, I, yeah, and that way you, you, you concentrate a little bit more and you wouldn't mess up. But guys, as, as like a Mets fan and baseball fan, what I find cool about this Corey Kluber no-hitter is the coming of age, like two-time Cy Young Award winner. 2019, he misses most of the season with all sorts of injuries, the fractured right arm. He tries to come back and then he gets hurt again. 2020, he, he pitches one inning and then his season is over in the, in the bizarre 2020. 20 COVID shortened year. And now this year you're questioning, oh, the Yankees gave him 11 million. He's coming off injuries. Can he get past five innings? And now he pitches this gem. So I thought this this cool coming of age story from a two-time Cy Young winner, a three-time All-Star, and then two injuries, and now at 35 years old throwing a no-hitter. It, it all comes full circle, guys. It's great. It's still May 20th, though. We still have, what, four and a half months left. So it's still May 20th, and we could be talking the other direction later in the season. But, you know, for now, he's 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 turned things around and he's last night. He was great. Obviously. I, I, I think he needed that. I really do. And I think the team needed it as well. They dropped. Who was, the who was behind the plate? 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're going to get there too, Nelly. <laughs> Don't rush the bit, as they say in the comedy business. Yeah, but uh, Higgy was back there. He said Higgy called a great game. He said that that was his first answer to Meredith Morakovitz on the Yes Network. He brought up Higgy immediately and said that. But it's just, Jake, as you said, it's just such a great story. And, and we gave the Yankees a little bit of a hard time for giving him $11 million, for bringing him into the fold, for the slow start. And let's be honest, in Nelly's defense, and Kluber said, oh, I'm coming along, I'm coming along. It didn't look like he was coming along. But in spring training, and this goes back to Nelly's point really early this season, it just seems like they don't get these guys as ready as they used to in spring training, Nelly. Uh, spring training used to be to work yourself back into shape. Now it just seems like, all right, let's get into this pitch count here. This It doesn't seem like they're ready to pitch deep into games when they break camp. And it seems like Kluber... His last, like, maybe three starts, it seems like really, Jeff, where he's gotten his feet and his legs under him and was able to pitch this no-hitter, 101 pitches. I mean, that's economical. You'd like it to be maybe a little less, but 101 pitches in a, in a no-hitter, that's tremendous. Yeah, it's shocking to me. You're absolutely right. It's shocking to me that these teams and most teams are doing it, that they're using April, the beginning of the season, to get their starters ready for May. You know, that used to be you know what, we're getting our starters up to 100 pitches and that's where they're leaving camp. And they're going to be able to throw 100 pitches opening day. Unless it, unless it doesn't go well for them and they have to have a shortened outing, then you're not going to reach 100 pitches. But 100 pitches was always the magic number once you left camp. And now it's about 75. I mean, I think Kluber left camp at I was there with Ricky Ricardo, and I think we called his last spring training game, and it was 75 pitches. So he left spring 70, with 75 pitch count. Yeah, that, that doesn't give you a lot of wiggle room when you're heading into the season, but you could see, how, it's just like Jake said, it, it's just such a great story. Where this guy was the last two seasons, he takes a comebacker and, and breaks a bone, and then last year he throws one inning for the same Rangers he just no hit and has a shoulder injury that he needs to get fixed. So he threw one inning last Last year, he threw, I think it was 35 and two thirds in 2019. So 36 and two thirds innings the last two years for a two time Cy Young Award winner in the American League. And then he comes back, he, he busts his rear end, he gets back on a mound, and he's able to do this. And I know, as you said, Nelly, we have six, and it's one away from the record for an entire year, which is seven. And what was eight? We were talking about that before the show. Eight was back in like the 1800s or whatever, before they even started counting stuff. So there was no social media back then. There was no. No, uh, no. I think they did have camera phones back in 1800. (laughs) They may have. You had announcers that talk like this. Uh, Here comes the pitch, and it comes in wide. You know what's shocking? It was the first no-hitter since Cone. Perfect game in 99. Ninety nine, yeah. Butter was being churned in eighteen hundreds, guys. Butter was being churned. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, by your feet. But it was and I think it was the first road win. And it was the first road win since something like nineteen in the twenties. And that was at old Philadelphia. They said something, uh, you know, my, one of the guys I was doing the Marlin game last night, he goes, Oh, he's a huge Yankee fan. And uh, the host, and he says, when Philadelphia had Shide Park, I never even heard of Shide, oh, Shide Park. Park. Yeah. That's yeah. when the uh, last road no hitter for the Yankees was. And uh, we got to give some credit to Eric Cressy. I guess the guy knew what he was talking about when it came to Corey Kluber. He was the one that he's the strength and conditioning coach that had helped advise the Yankees before they signed him. And let's be fair, there were other teams in on Kluber. It's just the Yankees had the best offer, and, and that's why Kluber's in pinstripes, and I'm sure Rangers fans and the Rangers organization a 
like. Would have liked to see Kluber on the mound wearing a white Rangers jersey and not instead of the powder blues. Where they, what was it last year? He wore the powder blues for an inning yes. and then shut it down. Yes, that, yes, that was not a good uniform. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't. no, that but, wasn't a good uni. But <laughs> but Kluber gets the uh, no hitter for the Yankees. It's the first one, as Nelly said, since David Cohn's perfect game in 1999. And that Culberson walk is going to bother me because it, it could have been another perfect game. But I'll, I'll stop it. Take I'll, the no hitter. Take the no hitter. I'll take the no. Well, I mean, look how close. There's like three or four of them this year out of the six that were either one was a wild pitch. The one in Seattle that who was the guy for that threw against Seattle it was uh was it Miley? No, it wasn't Miley. That was John Means. Means in Seattle where it was the drop third strike. I mean, that, and then we had one pass ball. I think that was a uh, a hit batter. A couple hit batters actually. Well, hopefully, well, thankfully, thankfully, it wasn't a Galarraga situation where Joyce misses the call at first base. Be- and oh, and be- yeah. Baseball has to go back in time and give that guy a perfect game. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, he had like two or three years in the major leagues, and that was it. I know. I know. And he's not even in the record book with a perfect game. And he would have had number seven this year, but by these rules, the doubleheader by Bumgarner's no-hitter didn't count as a a no-hitter. So we've really had had seven. And, you know, it's not only the first no-hitter in pinstripe pod history. It's the first Yankees no-hitter in the history of podcasts. I don't think there were podcasts in 1999. So history all around. Yeah, and and there was some debate on that Bumgarner, whether it should be considered a no-hitter. And, you know, you get the baseball purists that just sit there with their arms folded. Harumph, harumph, it wasn't nine innings. Harumph, harumph, harumph. <laughs> the, harumph. Guy threw, the guy threw seven innings without giving up a hit. He, he did six more it. outs. I, I know, but he outs. can't help it that the game is over. Kenny, can he go out in the bullpen and, and throw a simulated n- another two innings against guys who can't hit? Yeah. All right. It's it, six more outs. There you and go. And you know what's no even more impressive? I didn't go back, but I know a lot of them. Some of these no hitters, I think, have been with a well. Kluber threw 100, 101 pitches last night. I mean, most of them have been maybe reasonable, one hundred and fifteen and under. Usually, you're seeing no hitters like one twenty five, one thirty. Oh, we got to skip this guy as next star because he threw too many pitches. I mean, these guys are getting no hitters with a little bit over a hundred pitches. Nelly, can you take us back to cones? Like, what what was the aftermath of that? I'd love to hear the celebration afterwards was that insane <laughs> well him and wells well wells was he's got a story before. folks <laughs> he's got a story share it now <laughs> well any celebration with cone and, and wells i mean and any no hitter i've been a part of five never been on a team that i've gotten no hit but it's one of those things that you don't say anything and flash in the dugout and i think even cone said hey i wanted people to talk to me and everybody he's by himself and then all, at the whole other end of the dugout is right there and it, you don't want to say anything to him but you might have had a few uh, beverages afterwards and you know possibly possibly po- possibly I, I, I a would, few beverages i would think that's definitely so kluber had nine strikeouts he had Let's see, ground out. He had nine ground outs and three fly outs. So they only got the ball in the air, Nelly, three times against Kluber. That's just amazing. His sinker and his slider were working, apparently, because with the strikeouts and the ground outs, just a tremendous performance. And and hopefully he could keep that going throughout the rest of the season for the Yankees. David Wells, because it relates to us in SNL. David Wells, when he threw his perfect game, he went to SNL, the after party, and got hammered with Fallon and everyone. Because I went to the charity event a few years ago. He kept talking about it. It was like a big story that he didn't sleep that night. He came to the ballpark, just hung over, maybe still drunk, and threw the perfect game. So maybe <laughs> maybe that's the, the key to throwing perfect games. Is, yeah, uh, when, party you're, the when you're sweating whiskey, it's always a good thing. 
<laughs> but that, that's an incredible story because not only was it a no hitter, it was a perfect game. Who did Wells do it against? I don't remember. I think it was Twins, Montreal. Twins. 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 Cone did it against Montreal. I was at that one. I was at Wells's perfect game. I got there in, in the third inning because traffic was god awful. I took because you were at the SNL after party, of course. Well, you that's were there when Don Larson threw the first pitch out to <laughs> yes. Yogi Berra. Oh no, 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 that was Cone. That, that was, was Cone's. Uh, yeah, that that was Cone's perfect game. Oh but, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but Wells, I took. Listen to this. Think about this for a second. My ex-fiance, I take her to that game. It's her first ever baseball game in person. Wow. And it's David Wells' perfect game. Mic drop. Never go again. Yeah. I don't think she did. I guess she never did. She's your ex-fiance, so who knows? We'll never know, I guess. (laughs) But but let's move on really quick before we bring in uh, Billy Ripken. And uh, the Yankees, the next series that they're going to play is going to be a fun one. It should be a fun one. The White Sox are in first place. They look to be in the upper class of the American League along with the Yankees. So we're going to get our an idea, Nelly, of where the Yankees stand uh, this weekend. It's a good litmus test for this ball club. And we also have to talk about what Tony LaRussa said about his player and the home run and the 3-0 pitch and a position player pitching. It just seems like this keeps going around and around and around in a never-ending circle. Let the kids play, do this, do that, celebrate. Uh, there's unwritten rules. You know, you get some people who are old school who who tend to agree with LaRussa. You have other people like Jake, our producer, who want LaRussa to go and take a dirt nap. Uh, he's 76 years old. He's too old school. If he wants to hit on 3-0, he can hit on 3-0. But, Nelly, what it comes down to is his manager gave him a sign. He didn't listen to his manager, right? I agree. I, that's that's the only problem I have with it. You know, I, I really respect Tony LaRusso. I'm really glad that he came back. I'd like to see old school back. You know, you get the feel of the gaming. You know, anybody else managing the White Sox are probably not doing what they're doing because you're seeing the pitchers go deeper into the game, or at least he's letting them getting out, get out of their jams. Now, he had, did have some players have some backlash and even one was Lance Lynn on his own team, thought that he was a little out of line with some of his comments. The only issue that I have is that Mercedes disobeyed a take sign, and he did come out of the dugout, and he said, hey, I thought he was going to swing, so I verbally yelled at him. The third base coach gave him the take sign. Offense is down. I want to see excitement. I love the excitement that the players bring. I love watching Mercedes. He's a great talent, and he's a fun player to watch. He loves the game. If you're that bad and you have no pitchers left and you're going to throw a position player, then I think all the rules as far as unwritten should be thrown out. Let him go deep as much as he wants if you're going to sit there and throw an infielder. You know, go ahead because you stink. Go go get another pitcher. I have a different feeling when another pitcher's in there. I wish that Tony La Russa would have called him in his office and would have done it that way instead of through the media. That's, that's, the, that's another problem that's that fair. I have. That's fair. Because Joe Torrey would have never done that. I know, you know, I was listening to Mad Dog once and a lot yesterday, and he goes, oh, well, ha- would Hank Aaron swing 3-0? No, he probably wouldn't. But back then, they didn't have position players that threw either. And also, they had managers that would take you in the office and area out. Joe Torrey would have never gone through the media if he ever had a problem with a player. It was always done privately. And as far as being old school, I think Tony Russo should have known better than that and maybe called him in the office and explained to him then, hey, I gave you the take sign. You listen to what I'm saying. You listen to what the third base coach A younger does. manager would have done that, but I think LaRusa has so much cred in this game and so much money in the bank quote-unquote Chris Farley air quotes that he doesn't care. He's going to do what he does, and that's manage winning baseball teams and call people out when he needs to call them out. I do agree with you, though, Jeff. See, the thing that gets me 
that grinds is he doing my... that to Albert Pujols? If Albert Pujols was in that probably situation, not. No, probably so there's really not. shouldn't. I mean, just because this kid's a rookie, you know, because he's a rookie, you should you should sit there and call him in the office. He wants to make an example out of the kid. You're right. He probably shouldn't have done it in public like that. But what grinds my gears is this. And Jake, you can come in after this. But what grinds my gears is this. There only could be one way of thinking. Larusa said what he said. That's his opinion. It was it was his decision to do that. It was his choice. We should respect it. We shouldn't pile on and it's just one way of thinking and that's it. And if you don't like our way of thinking, you're canceled. You're this, you're that. Enough. There's varying opinions. There's ways to look at baseball. There's ways to look at life. There's this way. There's that way. You might not agree with it, but in my estimation, you should respect it in a way. You don't have to agree with it. You could have a nice nuanced debate about it. You don't have to yell and scream and say they're wrong and you're right. Their opinions, as my late father used to say, they're like, you know what? Everyone has them. All right, there's a lot of layers to this here, guys. First off, yes, there's opinions, but one thing, this team is 26 and 16. To air this out like this, when your team is in first place and is a contender to win the American League, I don't know if it'll be damaging, but it could be damaging to the clubhouse. There were a lot of players that, like you said, were not happy with him saying that. So if this team was in last place and they're pimping him out, they're hitting these homers, blah, 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 that's a different story. But this team right now has the best record in the American League. So this is a good team that's having some fun. This is like me going out there and pitching 46 miles an hour. I'm licking my chops, and I want to hit that out. If you want to joke and throw a position player in the mouth... Well, I'm going to joke and hit a home run. I don't care if it's 302 or whatever the count is. That's a meatball right down the middle, and I want to hit it. So, like you said, now he should have talked to him, and his, he made the comment about he's got a locker, I got an office. Well, you take him to your office, and you talk to him about it. You don't tell the media because that became a huge story, and now nobody likes Tony LaRusa. I mean, the it, we call it today, guys, getting ratioed. That tweet by, I think it was Jesse Rogers, was ratioed. It had about 10,000 quote tweets and, like, uh, 500 <laughs> normal retweets. So, Tony LaRusa was ratioed by the entire internet which he doesn't care about of course but don't air him out like that he's a kid and again position player and you're in first place i i didn't like it i get the take sign you got to follow the rules there but a 46 mile hour is 46 mile hour. that is an average fan coming out of the stands and throwing a pitch is what the twins did to him <laughs> all right um okay i i jake i hear you i respect you let's get um, billy ripkin's opinion on it yeah let's let's do that Joining us now is Billy Ripken. He spent 12 years in the MLB with four teams, the Orioles, Rangers, Indians, and Tigers. Of course, now he's with the MLB Network and Sirius XM. He was also an author with his brother, Cal, wrote three books. Billy, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, when you listed the teams that I was on, that just means you get fired a lot when you have to go find another team. And some of those teams fired me multiple times. But I was fortunate enough to be able to stay around and, and stay in the big league for about 12 years. Yeah, you are one of the best infielders in, in baseball. Let's face it, you have one of the best fielding percentages of all time. So let's not shake a stick at your career. Just a tremendous job on every team that you played on, and you left it all on the field. Let's start with what we just finished talking about in our last segment, and that's the Tony Larusa comments. What did you feel about uh, Larusa and his comments about his, his hitter there swinging on three and zero. Well, I, I probably disagree with Tony's overall philosophy swinging three zero when there's a position player in the game. That would be my first point. But if Tony truly wanted a player on his team to take in a three zero count and 
that was not looked at in the way that Tony liked. Tony as the manager certainly has right to do things. It's, it's your clubhouse. And Tony is of the old school generation that the manager is the one that runs what goes on in the field. And I'm not so sure that it's everywhere like that in the other 29 places. But in Tony's place, he's going to be that way. So if you're missing signs or refusing to look at signs, not that there's that many signs given anymore in today's game, a manager has every right to be able to police an area that he sees fit. So for that part of it, I'm the old school guy. But as soon as the position player comes in, maybe I would have been guilty as well in that situation and not look down at the third base coach to see the proverbial one finger being held up in the air, which means take one. But I'd like to think that maybe I would have, you know, been able to look down there. And if I would have seen the third base coach give you the take, I would have taken it because that's what the manager said. Yeah, I agree. Both both things. You know, once the position players come in, if you're that bad of a team that you got to throw these guys, then, you know, all rules are out. Go ahead and swing. Offense stinks throughout the league anyway. You might as well have some excitement. Mercedes is an exciting player to watch. And, and you know, I, I like the emotions that the kids bring now. But again, you have the manager giving you the take sign. You got to obey the manager. You should be respecting the manager. He's the one that's in charge. The thing that I had a problem with is that I wish he would have done it behind closed doors. You know, he wouldn't have done that to Albert Pujols when he had him in St. Louis. I've played for managers that they, if they've had a problem with you, they're calling you in the office or never doing it through the media and humiliating you through the media. I wish he would have taken the young kid into his office and say, listen, I gave you the take sign. That's not something that we do. We have to learn the game a little bit different. I know what you're about and what you're doing. That's probably another issue I might have had. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point. And and it seems to be that might be the thing that's different in today's game compared to when Tony was around in Oakland and St. Louis. The amount of coverage and the amount of access to people, especially the way they're doing interviews now, it maybe it almost feels like the manager feels like he has to give up some. But I'm way on board with that. I will like to point out this, though, with Tony LaRussa and what he's been able to do in his managerial career, whether it was Oakland and St. Louis. He has managed some pretty unique personalities and star power, you know, through his run. And I give Tony some hall passes. It's nice to see Jerry Reinsdorf and the Chicago White Sox give Tony LaRusso at age 76 or however old he is. I'm sorry if I went too high. 76. Um, a chance to manage again because I still think that there's something to be said for experience. And I agree. in today's game, it seems like we're always looking for the, the new next best thing. Well, the new next best thing might not ever be able to get that experience that that old dog and Tony LaRusso have. And Tony has always been an intelligent manager, has always been kind of at the forefront of doing certain things. So can Tony learn new tricks? I believe the answer is yes. The difference is some of the youngsters can't learn the experience that Tony already has. Yeah, and I, I really don't need to tell you the truth, Billy. I don't need your mean Mercedes at his locker uh, talking in the third person, too. He's, <laughs> he's calling himself by its first name for crying out loud. Pump your brakes. You're a DH and you're a rookie, okay? I just don't need that. So I, I know how you guys have said this. You're both former players. I respect both of your opinions. But I tend to side with Larusa, and I agree with Nelly because, uh, like you said at the outset, Billy, if the manager says it, you should listen to the manager. I mean, that's how I grew up. I'm, I'm sure that's how you guys grew up, Billy, with your dad as your manager in Baltimore. I can't imagine if you didn't get a sign from him what would happen, but it would piss me off so bad. Let me give you two little quick ones from my pop point of view. 
and where where I grew up and where what has shaped me and probably dad's influence on Cal made him the Iron Man, made him the Hall of Famer. I think Junior would have probably played in the big league anyway because he was big, he was gifted, but the drive and the influence that Senior had on Junior probably carried him to the next, next level. Two things that my dad did, I remember I was 17 years old when I graduated high school, I was going to sign with the Orioles, and they came over to the house, the scout pulled out the uh, standardized minor league contract or whatever and put it on the coffee table, and I said, should I read that? And dad said, no. And I said, why not? He said, the only thing that says is whatever they want you to do, you're going to do. Sign your name. So I wrote my name on it. So that's where dad stood with that. The other one was, I I appreciate you talking about my my fielding percentage. And I will say this, there's one thing that I felt I did pretty good in my career was catch the ball and throw the ball where I was supposed to. And that's why some teams out there like keeping me around. But I made an error, went up the middle as a second baseman. I kind of flipped the ball to first base almost as a shortstop would start a 6-4-3 double play. I, to this day, still swear Eddie Murray was getting late to the bag at first base, so I saw his back position, and I threw it where I last saw him. By the time Eddie spun around, reached to catch the ball, it pulled him off the bag, and I get the error. So I came off the field, and I was hacked. I go down and sit in Memorial Stadium, old Memorial Stadium, down the uh, steps heading towards the locker room. Senior came down. He goes, you treat that out like it was important. And I immediately started to like cast the blame towards Eddie because Eddie got to the bag a little late, I said. He goes, did you treat the out like it was important? And I basically had to say no. And he goes, don't do it again and turned around and went back to the dugout. So when your father scolds you like that as the manager of a team, but that was the the idea and that was dad's mindset behind everything. One, you're an employee of the Baltimore Orioles. You do what they tell you to do. And two, you better treat every out import, like it's important moving forward. Yeah, I had a manager, Lou Pinello, the exact same way. You know, it was grew up big fan of you, Cal, your dad, the Orioles grew up right down the street from right down the beltway from you guys. So it was, uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. You know, that, that's again, I don't know if they could do that now. You know, I don't know if they could teach that way now. And, and I don't know if how guys, guys are really oversensitive in the, in this day. And it's really tough the way you have to manage a certain personalities. Uh, we talked about the no hitter number six on the year. I still think it's special to get 27 outs and, and not give up a hit against a major league team. I don't care how poor they are, whether it's Texas, Seattle got no hit twice. Cleveland got no hit twice. It's still special, but we're one away from tying a record. There probably are some concerns in base. What do you feel about this? Well, one did with the six of them, did you count the Bumgarners or that's still off the book? Oh no, I didn't count that one. I'm still old school. You got to go nine. I know, but big Madison Bumgarner, when they asked him about it, he goes, well, as I know the game's over. And I look yeah. up and exactly. Oh, exactly. No. <laughs> so it's not Big Mad Bum's fault that they changed the rules on them and threw it out there. It is funny and, and it is strange. And I, I do think that the conversation should still swirl a little bit more around some of these hitters' approach and what their thought process is up at home plate because I just don't quite understand some of the swings and misses that are currently in the game. And I go back and I still hold the hope for the game when earlier this year the Boston Red Sox were in New York playing the Mets and Christian Vasquez climbed up on an 0-2 heater of Jacob deGrom that was a hundy over the top of the strike zone and he had a rocket into right center field because he choked up on the bat and he shortened up to the ball with two strikes. And I just don't quite understand why that isn't more in vogue, but when I still see players capable of doing it, 
it gives me hope that people will continue to battle and do some things. But swing once, swing twice, swing three times, and walk back to the dugout like it just didn't matter, that kind of bothers me a little bit. I saw a tweet yesterday from, it was from a, uh, an MD, and he quote tweeted something from a writer, and he said, it, it, it seems to me that the analytic people are turning baseball into a game of stratego. And I, I, I never heard it like that, but it's driving me crazy, Billy. You wrote a book with your brother, Play Baseball the Ripken Way, the complete illustrated guide to the fundamentals. And something that drives me crazy, and, and I'll, I'll illustrate it for you with a play that happened this year with the Yankees. Labor Torres was on it first. Aaron Hicks hit a ball in the infield. It was stopped behind second base. <laughs> and Glaber was able to score from first. The ball didn't touch the outfield grass, but the catcher had to run to third because of the shift. And the pitcher stood there with his thumb up his rear end and he didn't know what to do. It seems to me, Billy, they have these shifts on and they employ these shifts during the game. But in spring training, they're not teaching these guys fundamentally where to be when they do have these shifts employed. I can agree with almost everything you said right there, if not everything I said. I also like to plug myself, because you keep mentioning the fact I wrote books with Cal. I also have a new one out that's on my own. I did it right when the start of the pandemic was happening at the beginning of last year, which is called Bill Ripken's State of Play, the old school guide to new school baseball. So you could check that one out because I think it's got some pretty good relative things that are happening in today's game compared to what we saw. But you're right. And Dusty Baker was the manager of the team that was doing that. And they asked Dusty about it after the game. And he said, well, when you play some of the configurations that we play, you might end up having plays like that. But if you're going to institute these things and you're going to take away instincts from your players, I think that's the key here. Some of the instincts are gone because every hitter comes up to home plate. I see seven fielders out in the field reaching their back pocket, to pull out a card, where to go stand. And I'm OK with information. Please give me all the information you can. But you could talk to me as a player, I'll guarantee it, and say, okay, these are where, this is how we're going to play these guys. And I'd say, okay, and I'd go over it again. I would put it in my brain. I don't think I need to write it on a three-by-five card and pull it out every time a hitter comes <laughs> up to home plate. And, and on top of that, it's someone like, okay, I'll date myself, but if I'm playing behind Mike Mussina early in the Baltimore days and Ricky Henderson comes up to home plate, through my brother's knowledge of the game, we could stand in five different spots, slightly different spots during one at bat, depending on how the at bat went, count, pitch selection, and so on and so forth. And not only would it be me and Cal doing that, but if I move two steps to pull, if it got to 2-0 on Ricky, I'm going to pull my first baseman with me. And Junior's pushing the third baseman over to the line and maybe backing him up a little bit because Ricky ain't going to bunt in, in a 2-0 situation. So, those are the things I think that we're losing with all the information and all the printout sheets that are given to people. I don't think players are necessarily thinking as much on their own and watching the game develop in front of them. Well, that's that's not just position players as pitchers as well, because you just explained what you guys used to do. And you, you used to see the signs. You wanted to know the signs from the catcher, what's going on, especially a guy on second or whatever. You get, and That's how you guys reacted. And you guys reacted on swings as well. You know, pitchers, 
should they they lose field just as much as the position players nowadays because they don't see what the hitters are doing. They don't. I see more O2 hits. Uh, I see you know more changeups that you've never faced this guy ever in your life, and you're giving him a first pitch changeup. Next thing you know, it's a base hit to right field. You know, it's an RBI. I'm like, how do you give a first pitch changeup to someone that's never seen your fastball before? You know, I went to two Oriole. I mean, two uh, Yankee games, and you talk about swinging out of your ass. You know, I'm watching Aaron Hicks, and it's a boring game now because it's just nothing happens. It's either home run or strikeout. This guy swings as hard as I've ever seen on every single pitch. That I'm like, why you even throw this guy down the middle? I mean, why even throw him a strike? I mean, he's just going to swing at everything you're going to throw. Uh, it, it seems like all the information you mentioned the information, and yeah, it's great. You, you know, I, I think it's way too much. It's almost to me that the league has to counteract all the analytics and all the all the information now just to make this exciting. Do you get rid of the shifts? I can't stand the shifts, but it's killing baseball. I mean, you're seeing these no hitters because it's almost analytics are outsmarting baseball. They're outsmarting the hitters now. And you have to make things happen. I mean, I know they're experimenting in a double-A league and, hey, keep two guys on the dirt. You can't go in the outfield anymore. Do you see the league doing something like that? I don't like the moving the mound or moving the plate. You don't know about injuries, and I don't get that. But I do get, hey, these shifts have to stop. Well, I'm not going to – there's going to be one where we're going to probably be on opposite sides of the fence because I'm not 100% sure – that the shift is doing it. I think it's more of the mentality and the approach of the hitters. And I will say this, that there are probably a select few hitters in the game that this shift is actually crippled. But if you go back and look at some of the analytical numbers, the Babbitt, the ball put in play, the average on the ball put in play has held pretty constant since 2012 through now. And it's down a little bit now, but the overall league average is down as well. And my point is on this one is if it cripples some big left handed donkey um that's up there <laughs> don't play and it takes fifty points off of his average, but yet the overall batting average on balls put in play remain constant through the league over the years, it's given twenty five other guys two points a year. And I'm still holding out hope like I did with Christian Vasquez climbing up with a Grom's Hundy, that Freddie Freeman, when they play the overshift against Freddie Freeman, his career average against those overshifts, which is roughly about a full year's worth of play of just facing the overshift, his career average is higher than his career average when it's normal. So when you have guys like Freddie Freeman in the game that don't go up to home plate, and completely swing out of the rear end every time. Understands that if that shortstop's on the second base side, boy, I like the way this looks because I'm going to hit me a low missile to the other side of the infield and get me a knock. And, and once again, I'm not saying that it hasn't crippled some, but I think league-wide. Longoria, I was watching last night. I was up on the set at the network. Longoria rolls the ball to the right side off of Miley and it almost looked like he was grinning running down to first base because they put three guys on one side of the infield on him, and he hits this ground ball to the right field or through the right side. So I, I think for every time I give a point to the overshift killing it, and yes, if I was a hitter and hit a rocket past the pitcher's neck and the second baseman was standing right there and caught it, I'd be hacked. But I also think I'd be getting my own fair share if they put three guys on the left side of the infield. I'd find ways to roll the ball through the right side from time to time as well. Do you think, Billy, that eventually because dj lemayhu you cannot shift dj lemayhu and i and i bring him up because uh every time he comes to the plate you don't know where the hell the ball is going to go he is the 
prototypical situational hitter. And Gio Urshela has been like that too this year for the Yankees. But do you think that it's in the hitter's hands to make the other team not shift them? Do you see the shift shifting away because hitters go back to true situational hitting? Or do you see players swinging from their rear ends for the rest of our lives here? Well, I, I hope it's not the latter, but I got this suspicion that it might still be that. The hitters going up there and just taking their 3-8 swings. But you mentioned the right people. And I think uh, three years ago, I was sitting out here on the desk one night. Rizzo came up with the Cubbies. First time up, they were overshifting him. He bunted down the third baseline, got a knock. His second time up, they overshifted him. He came up and bunted his second time and got a knock. So he's two for two with two knocks. And the third time he came up, they played him more conventional. So, I mean, it can be done. And, and I don't quite understand why the analytical world thinks that a walk is the greatest thing on the planet. I can't understand why you wouldn't think that a bunt-based hit is equal to that walk because it's getting you on first base, which helps your on-base percentage. So I'm not quite sure where it's all going to go. I'm, I'm hoping I'm not going to give in to it. When I keep seeing players do it, what you talked about, and DJ LeMayu is probably one of my favorite players to watch play. Um, If you want to use the throwback type mentality or statement towards him, that's what I like watching. And you can't overshift him. Why more people don't study the guys that actually have success and do things right is a little beyond me. Billy, uh, I could talk baseball with you and Nelly uh, for hours and hours and hours, but unfortunately we, we've run out of time. I didn't even get to ask you if your Aberdeen Eagles got to play his Catonsville Comets at all during <laughs> your high school. It's Catonsville. Cat- and Billy's about, Billy's way older than me. I used to watch him when I was a little kid. Way older. He's two oh, years geez. older than me. <laughs> He used to watch me when he was a little kid. But have you ever covered Nelly's three-point shot on this show? Because Nelly threw sliders an awful lot when he pitched. His three-point shot had slider rotation, but he was pretty good at it. Uh, yeah, that's all you would yell when we would play. We'd play three times a week in the winter, and every time I'd shoot one, slider! <laughs> and Billy, I got to tell you, I, I don't want to ask you about it, but I have to say it as a statement. My friend and I collected cards. We, we played baseball. We collected cards. We emulated you guys all the time. He got that damn Fleer card. And no matter how many freaking packs of cards I bought, I never got my hands on it. And it pissed me the hell off to, to no end. And he always held it over my head that he had that damn card and I didn't. All right. Well, you made your statement. I'll let it go. It's been 30-some years. Thanks, Billy. We appreciate the time. (laughs) Thanks, Billy. You're welcome, guys. It was fun. That says goodnight to episode 54, the Goose Gossage slash Aroldis Chapman closer edition of the Pinstripe Pod, our Yankees podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown and Brian Mungia for three for producing the show. Go into Apple Podcasts right now and give us a five-star rating right in a positive review. We appreciate it. For Jeff Nelson, I'm Chris Shear, and we are back Monday after what should be a fun three-game set in the Bronx against the White Sox. Thanks for listening, folks.